He is risen. He is risen indeed. Welcome to Easter at Church at the Mill. We're so glad that you came to worship with us. We're thankful for you and the person sitting in your lap and the person... And the person you parked beside and the person you tried to park beside and they wouldn't let you in, thank you for your patience to get here. I'm going to welcome three groups of people to worship at Church at the Mill on this beautiful Easter Sunday morning. First, for those of you who are here with us live, we're so glad that you're here. For those of you who are here with us live but you're right next door in Overflow Church family, can we welcome the Overflow folks? Thank you. We appreciate you. And then for those of you who are joining us online, this is our online broadcast as well. We're thankful that you were able to join us. Many of our members serve our community and work in various jobs where they're at work today. Others, due to health reasons, aren't able to join us. And we're so thankful for the gift of technology that will allow you to celebrate Easter with us no matter where you may be. You are in for a treat. This is our fourth of fifth Easter celebration here at Church at the Mill. We enjoyed two services yesterday, one earlier this morning, and then this one, and then one to follow. So there's still time if you know someone who may need an encouragement today, tell them to come and join us in a few hours at our 11 o'clock service. If you are a guest of ours, and we enjoy many guests on Easter Sunday morning, whether you be a family member from out of town, you're visiting from a sister church, or perhaps you haven't been connected to church, and Easter weekend was a weekend that you decided, you know what, I want my family and I to come and be a part of a worship service. We could not be more honored that you would come and join us, and we want two things. One, we want you to feel encouraged and be made to feel welcome, whether you're sitting in overflow, watching online, or you're here with us live. But secondly, we would love for you to give us a record of your attendance. There's a connect card in the seat backs in front of you. Those will be made available to you over in the overflow. If you're watching online, it's available online as well. My favorite way for those of you on campus, whether you're in overflow or you're here with us live, is to receive those at the conclusion of the service. Me and my lovely wife will be at the center of the concourse, just under the big words called the hub. It's the center of our campus, sort of the hub and the wheel of everything that happens here. And come by and say hello. Give us that Connect card. I've got a gift for you. I'd love to meet you. Now, I know Easter's crazy, and I know you've got plans. Mama's got a ham in the oven, and you got to get somewhere. But if you'll take just a few minutes to say hello, that would mean a lot. And even if you can't, if you would hand that Connect card to any member of our Connect team or staff, we'll be sure to reach out to you at some point this week and just drop a note in the mail to say thank you for being a part of Church at the Mill. There are always significance to these special weekends. And what we do at Church at the Mill on a weekly basis is what many Christian churches do. In fact, the rhythm of our Sunday mornings typically is about a half hour of worship and then about a half, well, who are we kidding, about 45 minutes of preaching. And the worship often softens our heart. It gets us ready to receive the word. And we worship in two directions. We worship through song and we worship through the word. But on those special Sundays in and around Christmas and Easter, uh, we like to work together. It's one group of people up here. Uh, we want to lead you into worship, whether it be through song or sermon, whether it be through music or the opportunity to hear God's word. And so you didn't walk into a regular Easter service today. You walked into a celebration where we're going to weave together the singing of God's Word and the preaching of God's Word. And we have two simple objectives. 
In the midst of bringing glory and honor to our risen Lord, I want every Christian in this room, if you came into the room with a relationship with Christ, you would say, Pastor, I'm a Christian. I've been saved. I've been born again. I want you to walk out even more confident in the faith you already have, even more grateful for the resurrection. If you're not a Christian or you have questions about where your faith is, I know that Easter weekends are crazy. I know that we're all a little bit out of our routine. I know there's festivities to attend later. I know there's a thousand reasons why you might think this is the last Sunday I want to get caught up in making some decision. I got great news for you. Church of the Mill is not interested in manipulation, playing on your emotions. And we don't force anybody to do anything. We would not rob you of the opportunity to make yourself understand what you need to do in order to have a relationship with Christ. But if you don't have that, or you're not sure where you stand, there is no greater day than Resurrection Day to leave here with the confidence of saying, I've taken the next step in the direction that God would have me take to make sure I'm right with Him and I'm ready to face the next year of my life with the same power that God used to raise Jesus from the dead. Are you ready for this journey? I hope you are. You sure do look nice. We didn't get all dressed up for nothing. Let's have some church. Take your copy of God's Word and find the book of 1 Corinthians, and when you find it, I'd like you to find the 15th chapter. Whether you have a device with an app on it that allows you to see God's Word, or you have a printed copy, as I highly encourage Christians to bring with them to church, I began a sermon series last week in the 15th chapter of the book of 1 Corinthians. For those of you who are guests, we don't believe we should align ourselves with a personality, persona, charismatic leadership, individuals, or titles. We believe the greatest source of eternal truth is the Word of God. So in the preaching of the Word of God, we just read it and explain it and apply it. And we do that 52 weeks a year here at Church at the Mill. We've been walking through the book of 1 Corinthians for about a year and a half, and we jumped into chapter 15 because there's no more precious treatment of the resurrection in the New Testament than the 15th chapter of the book of 1 Corinthians. And the reason that we called the series Not in Vain is because the Apostle Paul, who wrote this book, uses the phrase in vain multiple times. In vain, in vain, in vain. The English definition of the word vain is familiar to us. The dictionary that you and I would be most familiar with would define it this way. The first way to understand the word vain is having or undue excessive pride. We tend to know when someone is vain about their appearance or their looks. None of us want that. We're not attracted to that. But there's another way in which the word vain is used in Paul's language and in our language. It's the second and third definition there in the dictionary excerpt I put on the screen. Marked by futility or ineffectualness, unsuccessful, useless, vain efforts, having no real value. Think about a crew on a sinking ship. It may be said of them, the crew tried in vain to save the ship. In other words, they gave great effort, but their efforts produced no results. The ship still perished in the sea. That's the way Paul is using the word in the 15th chapter of the book of 1 Corinthians 
Because something has happened in the church, and it has everything to do with Easter. In the Greco-Roman world of Corinth, religion were a dime a dozen. Spirituality was accepted. If you were to walk through the streets of Corinth, you would have seen idols to many gods. You would have seen temples on the hillside to all kinds of deities. The thought of life after death was not a stretch. Like most of you in the room, most of the Corinthians living in Corinth were not atheists and absolutely believed there was life after death. Here was the problem. In the Greco-Roman world, they believed everything good about a human being was in their spirit or soul, and everything bad about a human being was in their flesh. So to die, to have the separation of the soul from the body, was good as long as it was never joined together again. Now, Christians do believe of a separation. If you've ever lost a loved one, you know when they pass, they leave, they're gone. If a preacher worth his salt has ever preached a funeral over a loved one in your life, he has said, hopefully, your loved one is not here. And if they knew the Lord, then they are with the Lord. Yet we can plainly see their body. However, Christianity also teaches that what is separated, soul and flesh, will one day be reunited. In fact, Christians believe in a future bodily resurrection. And that has everything to do with the fact that the founder, author, and finisher of our faith not only experienced the death of separation, his soul from his body, he experienced the reunification of the resurrection. We believe and preach and celebrate today in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. But it is not just a historical event. Believing in the bodily resurrection of Jesus also means that Christians believe in their own future bodily resurrection. And the Corinthian church began to deny this. There were some in the church teaching that whether or not Jesus had risen from the dead, they did not think that was a part of our future. The problem with this type of spirituality, which still exists today, is that it leaves so much generality, so much unknown. The idea of floating into some spiritual never-never land leaves every person to their own definition of what the afterlife is. And when you can define the afterlife according to your own convictions, you also get to define the present life and live by your own convictions. But if God has defined our afterlife, he also has the right to speak over our today life. And sometimes it's good for us to look at Easter in a different way. If you are associated with Christianity for any length of time, you know the tone of today is celebration. If you've ever attended a Good Friday service, it's very somber. It's very reverent because that is a day we commemorate the death of Jesus. But oh, come Sunday, we celebrate the risen Lord. However, in our celebration, one of the risks we can run is to leave it as this historical, magnificent miracle and to never see the day-to-day -day application of the resurrection in our life. Paul does something fascinating in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He leads us on a has-not, had-not, was-not journey. You ever ask the was-not, had-not, if-not questions? Maybe you've got a kid in your life, and from the time they came, you've been tired and broke. And once you have more than one, 
the process keeps going. You get more tired and more, can I invent a word, broker. (laughs) But when those little ones crawl up in your lap, when, when those older kids sit and look at you, one of the things you will say to them as a parent, at least I hope you do, is I hope you say something like, you know, you've only been around five or six years, but I can't imagine my life had you not been born. Guys, if you ever been a knucklehead in your marriage and you need to patch things up, am I alone in this? Is any men in the room? Ladies, would you nudge him so he'll say amen? Sometimes you try to be suave and debonair, and you, you look at her and you say, I just want you to know I don't always get everything right. Pause. If it's really bad, sniff, sniff. <laughs> but baby, that's what every southern man say, baby. I can't imagine my life had I not met you. And just let it pause, let it sit out there. If you've known her for six months, she'll fall in your arms. After that, she's going to roll her eyes. But anyway... <laughs> I, I looked at Laurel one night and I said, honey, in your wildest dreams, can you imagine what our lives have been like had we not met? She said, baby, you're not in my wildest dreams. <laughs> it is a good thing to take inventory of your life and to appreciate how terrible it would be Had this not happened, that not happened, this person not been born, this person not entered into a friendship, a relationship, or all joking aside, a marriage with you. If that's a good exercise, the greatest was not, were not, had not chapter in the entire Bible is 1 Corinthians 15. Because in the denial of the bodily resurrection that had invaded the church, Paul rightly points out, to deny your resurrection is to deny his. And let me explain to you, I'm speaking from first person Paul's perspective, let me explain to you what life would be like had God not raised Christ from the dead. In fact, I would offer to you very briefly this morning in word and worship six sad realities if Christ was not raised from the dead. Reality number one, if Christ was not raised, the entire message of Christianity is meaningless. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 beginning in verse 12. If you're a guest of ours, we preached verses 1 through 11 last week, and all our messages are always available perennially, forever, online, on every platform you can find a sermon. So if you want to catch up, you can. Look at verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And here he begins. Paul begins with this premise to take us on this mental journey down the road of what life would be like had Christ not been raised. Verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and our faith is in vain. Christians love truth. 
We gather in our church houses weekly and we ask our pastors to preach truth. We want the content of our songs to sing truth. We want to base our lives off truth. If there's ever been an influential Christian in your life, one of the common denominators of their influence is that even when it was hard and you might not have wanted to hear it, they spoke truth to you. We know that truth doesn't enslave us. Jesus said truth sets us free. When Jesus is praying for us just before his arrest, a few days before that great Easter morning, he says, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So we are truth people and we are word people. But everything we say is meaningless if Jesus is not raised from the grave. In fact, it is the hallmark of Christian preaching. The early apostles understood that Jesus' resurrection proved that he was the God-man. In Acts chapter 2, it said of this, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. In other words, their belief that Jesus was both God and man is proven by the grave being unable to hold him after that Sunday morning. We also know that the earliest apostles got in trouble not for preaching grace or forgiveness or love, but for preaching specifically the resurrection of Jesus. Two chapters after Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4 about Peter and John, And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed. Why were they greatly annoyed? Because Peter and John said, love your neighbor, forgive people when they sin against you. No, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. We're wasting our time. We can close up our instruments and leave. You can vacate the campus, leave the overflow room, or click close on the link you're watching this sermon. If Jesus was not raised, our message is meaningless. Secondly, if Jesus was not raised, our leaders are liars. Look at verse 14 and how it flows into verse 15. He says in verse 14 these words, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. Now watch verse 15. We, talking about the apostles, we are even found to be misrepresenting God. Why? Because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise. If it is true, the dead are not raised. Paul saying our integrity's on the line as Christians if Jesus was not raised from the dead. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul talks about the trust given to people who preach the gospel. He says, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. If Jesus was not raised, every Christian who's ever testified about Christ in your life, every Sunday school teacher, every faithful grandmother, every preacher you've ever sat under who preached the gospel faithfully, they're liars. And they're liars, and they're basing their lies on the lies that were given to them, which were given to them, which were given to them, all the way back to the very first apostles. 
If Christ was not raised, then everything we said cannot be trusted. But the good news is this. Christ was raised. He was raised. Lee and Leslie got married in the late 70s. Lee, the husband, Leslie, the wife, were very much in love. If you got married in the late 70s, you wore this same tuxedo. About three years after you wore it to your senior prom. Lee described himself as an atheist. Really didn't see any need for God. He thought it was superstition that people made up to cover their weaknesses. Leslie was a little bit more open, but would describe herself as an agnostic. They're not part of our church. I've not had the privilege of meeting them. But I know their story. Lee was an up-and-coming investigative journalist, and he got a high-profile job with a paper in Chicago. They bought and moved into a condo on the outskirts of the suburbs of Chicago. And when they did, little did they know, they moved next door to a Christian, a woman. This woman befriended Leslie. They began spending time together. Leslie noticed something about her. There was a hope and a peace and a grace about her. She wasn't perfect. She didn't shove the Bible down Leslie's throat. But there was something different about her life. And as their relationship began to develop, she followed her friend to church and began listening to the preacher preach the gospel. Falling under conviction and becoming convinced, Leslie gave her life to Christ, got saved, was baptized, and Lee said, I want a divorce. I want out. I didn't sign up for this. I don't want a wife married. I don't want to be married to a wife who's a part of a bunch of fanatics, a bunch of superstitious religious people. He literally thought she was joining a cult. He actually attended church with her just to see what brainwashing she was setting under. Interestingly, simultaneously, he noticed she began to change. She became a better wife. She became more kind, more forgiving. It drove him, it drove him even further to investigate what has gone on in my wife's life. And so he decided, if I can prove that what she believes is a lie, I'll get my wife back. So he set out to use his investigative tools as a journalist. And he rightly concluded that the single miracle that validates or proves Christianity is a farce, a falsehood, is the resurrection. So he said, I'm going to study the historical evidence for the resurrection. That's what he set out to do. He went into it as an atheist, excited to prove his wife wrong. And as he began to study the overwhelming evidence, after many months, he became convinced that no one can look at the historical, the literature, the evidence, and deny that Jesus rose from the dead. And in 1981, he went from not only believing that the resurrection had happened, he received Christ as his Savior, was saved, baptized, and is a pastor today, and wrote a book about his journey that's led thousands of people to faith in Jesus called A Case for Christ. He said it came down to four E's. He said, first of all, he realized that the historical literature is overwhelming. No one denies that Jesus died. Even the enemies of the cross believed Jesus was dead. They even talked about how to seal the grave so that his followers couldn't steal his body and make up a story. Secondly, he realized that all religions based on oral tradition, mythology, falsehood, 
takes centuries to develop. Yet the message of Jesus being raised from the dead started three days after his death and has never changed in the church. The church of Jesus Christ has many areas we debate, many differences among denominations. But Bible-believing Christians have never denied the central teaching that Christ was raised from the dead. Third, he realized that even the enemies of Jesus acknowledged the tomb was found empty. There's no body to visit. There's no memorial you can go to. There are places in the Holy Lands where they think this could be a place where the tomb was. This is about where he may have been buried. But there are no bones to visit. There are no remains preserved. There's no monument there. He has risen. And then finally, not one, not two, not three, but hundreds of eyewitnesses attested to seeing Jesus alive And not only did they attest to this, their lives were changed forevermore. You could get one or two or three people to believe a lie. You you can even, through hallucination, uh, through manipulating the mind, get a small group of people to be utterly convinced of a falsehood. This is called a cult. But when hundreds of people change the direction of their lives, and within just a few centuries, the entire civilization known as Rome attests to the resurrection of Jesus, it's just impossible to deny that it happened. Now, most of you did not come to Easter Sunday at Church at the Mill. Whether you're watching online, setting an overflow, or here with me live, most of you did not come today as resurrection deniers. That's not my fear. There's always cynics in every crowd. There may be some of you who are here out of respect for loved ones, and Christianity's not your thing. You are an atheist, an agnostic, or you consider yourself de-churched or unchurched. We're glad that you're here. We love you. We love the opportunity to preach the gospel over you your life, but you're probably in the minority. The vast majority of you tuned in today or walked in today because you believe in the resurrection. Here is the question, though. If that really happened and our message is not meaningless and we have not been lied to, then is the same assurance that Jesus rose from the grave the undergirding characteristic of every decision you make? of every relationship you're in, of every major major fork in the road, do you come to a point where you say, what would the risen Lord have me do? And are you living with the assurance that everything in this world may come and may go, times and seasons may change, but Jesus was raised from the dead, and that changed everything. Because when you have that kind of assurance, it's not just assurance. It's blessed assurance. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, I confess to you this morning there's a lot I'm not sure of. I'm not sure about the direction of our country. I'm not sure about the economy. I'm not sure about the rising conflicts in the world. I'm not sure about the future of my health. I can't be sure about the weather tomorrow. I can't be sure about the stock market. I cannot be sure about the faithfulness of people. As a human, I both fail and serve everyone around me consistently. 
but I am sure of this. You live forevermore. And because you were raised, I have blessed assurance. Church family, as you take your seat and we continue to speak Jesus, I remind you that Christ was not raised, our message is meaningless, our leaders are liars, and third, if Christ was not raised, our faith is futile. Look at verse 16 of our passage this morning. This is what Paul continues to say, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. It's empty. One of the threats to the gospel in our culture is that Jesus is reduced to the guy you let in to improve your life. I'm not in any way prepared to argue with anyone as to whether or not Jesus doesn't make life richer, fuller, more hopeful, more full of joy. In fact, I'm glad to brag on the greatness of knowing the king. The problem is, if we reduce our faith down to a pragmatic, experiential walk, then what happens when the blessings don't flow? A very prominent teacher, preacher, pastor, author, whose name I will not call, I, I don't desire to be critical of any individual but I will criticize the teaching when it's a threat to the gospel, recently released this to his church about why he is a Christian. This is what he said in a recent sermon. Why am I a Jesus follower? Because honestly, it's not because of some theological insight. It's not because one day I'm reading through the whole Bible and boom. The reason I'm a Jesus follower is honestly because following Jesus has made my life better and it's made me, a better, made me better at life. Again, I'm... I'm not prepared to argue or push back against the richness and the fullness of knowing Christ. Here's the problem. That same sentence can be said of Weight Watchers for some people. Or joining the Marines. Or, or drinking more water. Everybody I talk to says I should drink more water. If I drank all the water I'm supposed to drink, I wouldn't even make it through this sermon. <laughs> There's a ton of stuff we can do that improves the here and now. Living on a budget, working hard, being kind, exercising, getting enough sleep. When you feel bad, do the things you need to do to recharge your battery. I mean, we're all a part of the human race. And because of that, we know as humans, there's just some stuff we can insert into our life. And it does make our day-to-day -day life more enjoyable, more full. But if that's what we compress Jesus to, then what happens when we suffer, when life isn't good, when we don't feel especially spiritual or our prayers seem to bounce off the ceiling, when health and wealth don't come, and even still when doing the right thing is not immediately rewarded, but rather it costs us something. It is in those moments that we have to hang on to what the real faith in Christ is built on. Let me tell you why I follow Jesus. Because he's Lord. He's Lord. He's the king. And his resurrection proves it. Were it not for the resurrection, I'd have no right to tell you he's the king. 
But he's the only one to enter a grave and leave it never to re-enter it. Others were resurrected. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Jesus raised a little girl who had died. Resurrection is a miracle the Lord performed in the Scriptures. But every one of those people died again. Jesus was raised from the dead never to die. And all of a sudden what that means is my faith may carry with it emotions. There may be days when I feel as though the angels sing over my quiet time. There may be days when it seems like every prayer I've been praying gets answered in a matter of moments. But sometimes those days are few and far between. Sometimes I don't feel very spiritual. I don't feel very close to the Lord. Sometimes when I read the Bible, it's effort, it's work, it's arduous. Sometimes when I pray, I don't understand what the Lord is doing and I'm so confused, I don't even know how to articulate what I want Him to do. And in those moments... Then when I peel all the layers of my weakness, how fragile I am as a finite human away, when I'm just a man standing before a God, I'm faced with a choice. Did you raise your son from the grave? And if you did, even in my doubt, I believe. Even in my sorrow, I say a better day is coming. Even when I'm asked to greatly cost because of Christ, I say it is worth it. One of the greatest challenges of communicating to you is that by God's grace, we're in the land of plenty. You may have faced a lot of challenges to get here this morning, but not one of you is fearful of being persecuted for your faith. In fact, most people in your life probably expected you to go to church on Easter Sunday morning. And even those who are not concerned about the things of Christ, even those who do not know him, even those who don't see church as a priority, will affirm and congratulate you for going. And I am grateful for the freedoms we enjoy. But unlike us, we have brothers and sisters this morning meeting in underground churches in closed countries who are risking their job. Some of them will even risk their life to join with other believers to say that Jesus is alive. Jesus isn't working for them temporarily. It's even better. He's working for them eternally. And because of that, they're willing to risk their life because they know he'll save it in the end. And that's a faith that's not futile. Christ was not raised from the dead, our faith is futile. Number four, if Christ was not raised from the dead, our forgiveness is fiction. Look what the verse goes on to say in verse 17. I'll put it on the screen. Not only is your faith futile, the last phrase of verse 17, and you are still in your sins. If you grew up in and around church, you know we don't have any problem connecting the cross to our sins. When we teach our little ones to pray, usually one of the first things they recite in a prayer is, thank you, Jesus, for dying for our sins. And we teach that because that's what the gospel is. But you can't disconnect the resurrection from the removal of sin. It is true that Jesus died for our sins, but his death would have no effect had he not overcome the penalty of our sin. The wages of sin is death. But the Bible says the gift of God is eternal life. The only way the gift of God was eternal life is because the one who paid the debt for our sins went into the result of sin, which is the grave, and then came out of it. 
If Jesus paying for our sins is captured in the words, it is finished, the resurrection is the Father saying, amen, it is finished. In fact, we find a connection between the forgiveness of sins and the resurrection in what Paul told the Roman believers. One of the fundamental beliefs of our faith is that you do not make yourself right with God. You do not pay penance. You cannot pay for your sins. This is not some grand scale where at the end of your life, if your good outweighs your bad, you make it. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches God is holy and perfect, and nothing but holiness and perfection will make it into his presence. In fact, the presence of God is to immediately judge sin. And therefore, the only way we have the hope of eternal life is to stand not in our sin, but in the righteousness of Christ. And the only way the righteousness of Christ comes is not by our own good works, though our good works prove it's come. It's by our faith in him. The first forefather of faith and righteousness is Abraham. The Old Testament says Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him as righteous. In Romans chapter 4, Paul grabs that thought and says, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone. Paul goes on to say in the next passage, but for ours also, now watch this, this is important, and don't miss the resurrection. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. Now notice what Jesus did who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. It is one thing to follow Christ to the cross. That's what he says, take up your cross and follow me. In other words, die to self. That's what a person does when they get saved. They don't clean their whole life up immediately. They don't suddenly cease to struggle from sin. They say, I'm not in charge anymore. You're Lord. I die to self. You can have my life. You're my creator, and now you're my redeemer. I return to you that which you created in sin took. You can have my life. I give you, as children often pray, I give you my heart, Jesus. It's yours. But a person doesn't just follow Jesus to the cross. We follow Jesus to the grave, and because of the resurrection, we'll follow him out of it. The one thing I know that every human being has in common today, unless the Lord returns in our life, is that we all have a grave waiting on us. So I'm going to follow the one who went before me and came out of it. Which means I and any person who believes in the death and resurrection of Jesus can have the hope of not being in my sin. I can know my sin. I can struggle against sin until my dying breath. But upon faith in Christ, we are never seen in our sin. Now, sin won't be overlooked. The late great Adrian Rogers said it this way, your sin will either be pardoned in heaven or punished in hell, but it'll never be overlooked. But when we receive a pardon through Christ, we recognize The grave is just a temporary place for our remains. And as real as his resurrection was, so too is ours. Because in Christ, our sins no longer define us. Which is why 
in a world full of all kinds of ideas, we still celebrate the blood. What can wash away my sin? Not my own good works, not my own willpower, not a new relationship with somebody who brings me to church, not reading my Bible more, not trying to say less bad words and more good words. No, 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 no. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Church family, as you take your seat and we begin to conclude our time this morning, I take you to the last two verses of that passage. If Christ was not raised, our message is meaningless, our leaders are liars, our faith is futile, our forgiveness is fiction, and number five, as Christ is not raised, our dead are damned. That's exactly what the passage says. I, I read directly from verse 18. If Christ is not raised, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. That word perish doesn't mean they just died to never exist. It means they died to exist without the presence of God. Every one of you has buried someone you love. Some of you, this will be the first Easter without a precious mother, a father, a grandmother, a grandfather. Others of you have been touched by death this year because you lost a friend, a loved one. Some of you may be dealing with a miscarried pregnancy or even the death of a child. And whenever God's people gather around death, we, like the rest of the world, have great sorrow because it is God who has given us great love and we want our loved ones with us. And death is a separation that is irreversible. But the hope of Christians is that when someone we love dies in Christ, our separation while it can be sudden and feel very severe, it is only temporary. In fact, we hurt unlike the rest of the world because we hurt with the hope that the moment our loved one in Christ passes, they are in the presence of Jesus. And the same bodily resurrection that he experienced is promised not only for us, but for those who have fallen asleep, a respectful reference to death Paul uses, for those who have fallen asleep before us. This is the great hope of the resurrection. I have buried the dead. I have held and handled dead bodies. I have held dead babies. I have preached over many dead bodies. But in Christ, that will be the last time I see them dead. I will see my grandmother again. I will see my young cousin in his 20s taken by leukemia again. I will see men and women in this church I was not ready to say goodbye to again. I will see and enjoy the opportunity to build relationships with young people I never had the opportunity to build relationships with because their life was taken from us due to death. Years ago, when they were excavating ancient Rome, they found catacombs under the city where the ancients would bury their dead, both Christians and pagans. And the fascinating thing was the difference in the epitaph between that which was inscribed on the catacombs of the pagans and that which was inscribed on the catacombs of the Christians. Some pagan catacombs had the following inscriptions. 
Live for the present hour since we are sure of nothing else. I will lift up my hands against the gods who took me away at age 20, though I had done no harm. This young man obviously died very bitter. Once I was not, now I am not. I know nothing about it, and it is no concern of mine. Do you read the emptiness of these words? It's senseless to have any hope of death if we are but nothing more than highly evolved animals in the cosmic chaos of a big bang. But if there's a God in heaven, then all of a sudden afterlife is not just a source of sorrow when we experience death, it quickly is overtaken as a source of hope. You see, some of those same catacombs were filled with Christians, and these were some of the inscriptions. Put to rest in the dream of peace. Another Christian, carried away by the angels, called, he went in peace. My favorite was found on one grave, a Christian, victorious in life, victorious in peace, and victorious in Christ. Why can a Christian follow the Savior into the grave with hope? Because the Savior left the grave on Easter. Which leads to the final and sixth what if. If Christ was not raised from the dead, well, then our hope is heartbreaking. Paul actually says if there's any group of people to feel sorry for, feel sorry for Christians if Jesus is still in that grave. I just paraphrased verse 19. That's what he says. He says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. In other words, if you sacrifice for the Lord, if you suffer for the Lord, if you honor the Lord, if you say no to the pleasures of this world that are off limits to you because of the damaging effect of sin, if you serve the Lord and it costs you something, you ought to be pitied if there is no hope beyond the grave. But if Jesus was raised, You don't have to feel sorry for any Christian. Even the one suffering has yet to taste, cannot even imagine the coming glory. Let me leave you with this. If Jesus is in the grave, nothing really matters. But if Jesus is not in the grave, nothing else really matters. If Jesus is in the grave, then nothing really matters. Do the best you can. Have as much fun. This is it. But if he's not in the grave, (laughs) nothing else really matters but what you do with him. I'm thankful to tell you that everything Paul says is simply him asking rhetorically untrue questions. You see, because Christ was raised, our message has meaning. Our leaders weren't lying to us. Our faith is not futile. Our forgiveness is not fiction. Because Christ was raised, our dead in Christ are with the Lord and will be joined with us in that great getting up morning. And because Christ has been raised, you don't have to feel sorry for any blood-bought child of the King. Their future is beyond anything you can ever describe. And to be honest with you, every one of you was so loved by God that he died for you. I told you at the beginning of the service, I'm not interested in the manipulation. I don't believe spiritual decisions playing on your emotions have any fruit. People tend to burn out. They walk away. But I believe in the spirit of the living God. 
We believe people still get saved at Church at the Mill. We believe Christians repent of sin. I know people today whose life is filled with joy and it was not always that way. But they reached a point of decision where they said, I'm not gonna live the way I'm living anymore. I'm gonna claim the resurrection power of Christ. I'm gonna trust Christ. I'm gonna repent of my sin. I'm gonna turn to him and I'm gonna walk in the newness of life he promised, which is characterized by the fragrance of an empty grave. Friend, I just want you to know there's a thousand ways the enemy would love for you to relegate today as a wonderful service and to leave here and to go enjoy a delicious lunch. But if God is working in your life, why would you not take just a few minutes to pray with one of our pastors, to step in our prayer room right outside those doors and say, I just need to talk to somebody. We're not interested in forcing any decision on you. We're not going to ask you any questions you don't know how to answer, and we'll never break confidentiality with you but we would love to help you make the resurrection matter in your life. Because let me tell you what's going to happen. The Lord's coming back. And when he does, the Bible says the dead in Christ will be raised. And all those who are alive will be joined with them. And he will separate those who are saved from those who are lost. And he will welcome the saved into his presence. And we will march into the celestial city known as the New Jerusalem, the city called Zion. We will enter through the eastern gate. And when we do, we will be reunited with all our loved ones who have gone before us in Christ. White robes will be handed out. The hearts will be warming up. The angelic choir will be singing. And the King of kings and the Lord of lords who will have already established his throne through the millennial reign will invite us to an eternal state of paradise, never to suffer again. And on that day, when I bump into you, if you're saved, I will. And on that day, when I bump into you, and you and I are talking about how wonderful it is, we're going to talk about what you've done. We're not going to talk about one of my old sermons. We're not going to talk about this precious choir. We're going to talk about what he's done. All that he's done. So as we end Resurrection Day today, let's celebrate what he has done.